0: Thanks for tuning in to the Thirst For More podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Smiley. The Thirst For More podcast was created to help strength and conditioning coaches, personal trainers, fitness enthusiasts, and anyone that loves lifting heavy shit all be connected under one roof. We take deep dives into coaching, programming and training, running gyms, nutrition, and overall improving your knowledge in the field of strength and conditioning. If you're new here, I'm glad you're able to tune in and hope you can just take away one awesome piece of information today to help you along with your journey. If you're a returning supporter, I appreciate you being along for the ride. Now let's dive into today's episode. On episode 35 of the More Podcast, I sit down with Kevin Can of Precision Powerlifting Systems. Now, I've not met Kevin in person, but we've interacted quite a bit on the social media outlets like Instagram, and we've kind of had some good discussions and interactions, and I've really learned a lot from Kevin's material. So my first suggestion would be to hop over on Instagram show you how his material. Uh, you'll really like what you happen to find. In today's episode, though... We really discuss his upcoming in powerlifting, how he kind of got involved in the sport, how he got involved in coaching, and kind of his coaching background. He's been influenced by Louis Simmons and Boris Shaco, arguably the two greatest powerlifting coaches of all time. So needless to say, he's picked up some things along the way to not only help himself in his own programming, but also the athletes and lifters that he works with. He's worked with athletes raw and in equipment, and he obviously drifts towards the conjugate system, but he also talks about overall strength development for strength athletes. We also talk on some other topics regarding powerlifting and some of the pet peeves that we kind of have uh, and in terms of overall development for lifters. So if you're really looking to upgrade your general strength, squat, bench, deadlift, conjugate, and powerlifting programming, this episode with Kevin Can is fantastic. I think he will take away a ton of information from somebody that I think not only needs a bigger following, but I just think overall his content is superb, and you will learn something from him. And I think he's highly underrated in what he provides to the powerlifting and strength community. So enjoy this episode with Kevin Can. Hey everyone, Brandon Smiley here, and today I've got guest Kevin Can. Um, we've interacted through social media quite a bit, and I've really liked his content. He puts out a lot of good content over on Instagram. He's been on Dave Tate's uh, Table Talk podcast. So I think that enough just says the kind of information that he's able to provide, um, especially in the realms of powerlifting. Um, So Kevin, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me. So I kind of want to just kind of go from the beginning of what got you ultimately into powerlifting and kind of got you on your journey into strength sports and everybody's got something a little bit different, but uh, I really like to kind of hear how you got into all this. I probably have a little bit different of a
1: story. Like I fucking hated lifting weights when I was, when I was younger. Um, I played soccer through college, um, played on competitive club teams up through the under 21s. And then after that, I was kind of lost for a period of time. Like sports has just been like a huge part of my identity, a huge part of my life. Um, I ended up finding mixed martial arts, which I did for the next 10 years. Um, you know, at this point in my life, this is before I've even lifted weights. Like even when I was playing soccer, when we had our um, our days in the weight room, like most of the time I'm going to get treatment because it's like, man, some TRX rows aren't helping me play on Friday or Saturday. I Like I'm going to go get a massage. I'm going to sit in an ice bath um, and just try to get healthy. And so then I start doing the MMA stuff. I've had, I tore my bicep, I broke my leg, I broke my foot, broke my hands, had my ear almost torn off my face. Um, So like those started to pile up. And then my, you know, as I was getting older, it was getting harder to do. Um, I have a torn labrum on one shoulder, a torn cuff on the other. Uh, So finally I ended up working at, I got a job at Total Performance Sports just as a part-time coach in the beginning. And they had a cool little like multiply crew going around And I I needed something to do. So I actually signed up for a meet before I even put a barbell on my back um, and started training with those guys. And I ended up taking over the director position at the gym and just, you know, after the first meet, I had a ton of fun and I just kind of, I got into it and I I never looked back. I hired Boris Shako as a coach. Um, I liked learning about, you know, getting stronger, the strength aspects of it, um, the philosophies of it, the training techniques, like all of that stuff. Um, I've been, I went out to Westside for a weekend to talk to Louie, to learn from Louie. Um, like I, I just, when I do a hobby, like I, I, I like something that I can learn with that I can grow with that, like gives me a little bit of an outlet and stuff. So like powerlifting later in life has just been perfect for that aspect of it.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And, um, says you've got, uh, your undergraduate and master's degree in kinesiology, so is, I'm assuming that's while you were doing sports, you were doing that as well.
1: Yeah, so I uh, I interned at Harvard um, while I was getting my master's degree. Um, but yeah, like I just I loved playing sports, and like all I wanted to do when I went to college, I just wanted to play soccer. I didn't you know really care what I was majoring in. I never even like thought of what I would do for a living. Um, so I just kind of like fell into it, and even when I was going to get my master's degree. I was kind of like on the fence where I got into law school. That was going to be an option. Um, And I just really like didn't know where I wanted to go, but it's like I do well in school because I enjoy learning about this stuff. So it was something that interested me. So I was just like, man, fuck it. I'm just, I'm going to get my master's degree in this and we'll just kind of keep rolling with it.
0: Cool. And so first of all, I didn't know that you were at TPS there with, uh, Murph, so that's really interesting. Um, kind of, and obviously, around what uh, years were you there at TPS? So I started in 2013, okay. and then I left in 2018. Okay, so we probably actually even have a mutual friend. Of do you know Dan German? Was so he there when you were there? He left as I was coming in. Okay. So our paths crossed for maybe a few weeks. Okay, because he was a TA at Purdue while I was a student there, so that's how I know Dan. And then I kind of worked for him and um, Dan Brown in Indianapolis for about a year um, as well. So that's kind of a he kind of left TPS to come do what he was doing in Indianapolis. So that's kind of a small world um, oh, cool. in the in the TPS realm with. Obviously, Murph has been in the Multiply game for a long time. So was were you first subjected to powerlifting in Multiply and did your meet in Multiply, or did you do that meat Raw? I did it Raw. I actually didn't get into gear until like 2019. Okay, okay. Uh, so I guess my, my first question there is being around at the time uh, of the, I want to say the end of Multiply, but where Raw was probably starting to gather momentum, being around TPS and, and Murph and all them, how did having a multi-ply or even a, just an English single-ply, I'm sure single-ply guys are too, uh, a geared approach to powerlifting, how did that affect your your learning and, and the way you viewed training for the sport versus the way things are kind of going now with the huge emphasis on RAW? So... Dude, I didn't even know what powerlifting
1: was, man. I, I just I saw some guys in like really thick overalls just squatting a ton of weight and listening to like fucking heavy metal music. I'm like, this is fun. Um, so I didn't really even like know that there was a difference. So like I mean, one of my first conversations actually about powerlifting was with Fred Hatfield when he came in and he did a seminar there where he's literally hitting a vape pen at the bar while we're waiting for uh, a table to go out to eat. And uh, so this was like two months before I'd even, three months before I'd even started uh, lifting with the groups and stuff. So like, I didn't even know there was a difference, Um, but what it did teach me was, well, I'll tell you right now, like I, I wouldn't still be involved in powerlifting if it wasn't for having an equipped group like that. Like they just allowed me to get into their little, their little cycle. Right. So they gave me tips. I just did what they were doing. They like, it was fun. It was a group atmosphere of it. And like, I just thought that's how powerlifting was. Like I would say, TPS was probably late to the game in terms of um, switching to like that raw focused. Um, yeah, and not even like just like the environment of the coaching staff, but the environment of the um, people coming in because there were just still a lot of equipped lifters that were coming in and out of there. Um, so I just assumed that's what powerlifting was, and it wasn't until a little bit later, like once I started. Um, really getting like more involved with it. So like I started competing in the USAPL and stuff and realized that they had, you know, a large membership base. Um, there's a lot of raw lifters. Um, and then like, I started noticing more that there was just like raw lifting was kind of where everything was shifting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I do. I feel like up there in that Northeast area, uh, obviously kind of where RPS got its founding. Um, and generally historically that fed has been generally a little more geared um it's obviously tr- everybody's just trending raw now but um and then all the other gyms that are in that area at least historically have had way more equipped lifters than they did raw so i can kind of understand why they were probably were almost later to the scene as also too,
1: like even our usapl groups like because of all the colleges they were all equipped right so even like at that time like even the majority of the USAPL lifters in Massachusetts were lifting out of colleges. They were equipped also.
0: Yeah. Cause I know, I know I'm not 100% sure so much has changed in just the past couple of years, but I know historically to qualify for collegiate nationals, it was single ply. And do you know, are they still doing where it's a single ply total to qualify?
1: I think they have a uh, collegiate nationals. They have uh, the raw part of it too. So they have okay. both equipped and, okay I'm um, now I, I don't know when it came when like the Rock Legion Nationals actually started but it's been around for a few years anyway yeah.
0: okay um, and then your your time with Boris Shaco so that I really want to uh, kind of dive into I think when people hear Shaco they obviously think of the crazy squat and bench cycles uh, that are online I mean you can easily just google them and find them and plug in numbers and it's gonna spit stuff out to you Um Talk about being with that for three years in terms of what not only what you learned from him from a powerlifting and a programming perspective, but maybe even any misconceptions that people have with those templates that are online. Because if I'm a guessing man, his name might be attached to that, but he probably is not thinking that same way anymore.
1: So the templates that you see online were actually a combination of like three or four different lifters programs that were put together that like, like anybody would if they're creating a template for the masses to use, right? You're just kind of like, this is good enough for whatever demographic you're looking to kind of target in that, um, in that realm. Um, But in terms of like misunderstandings, one thing that he was really, really good at is just managing the fatigue levels of the program in general. Um, I don't know of many people who could do it in the same manner in which he did it. Um, but just like knowing how often to. So Vorobyov was a, I think it was a four-time Olympian. He medaled in four Olympics. And then the thing with like the Russian sports scientists is they end up getting PhDs in this stuff after competing at an Olympic level with weightlifting mostly, um, but with strength sports and other sports. Um, So what he had found was that the traditional approach where you kind of increase volume and then you decrease volume, increase intensity, but that didn't work as well as if you just had this like more, where you had these high stress training days, medium stress training days, low stress training days kind of integrated throughout the training week and training months. Um, So like those high stress days were, positioned in a so their whole goal is to push adaptation the medium stress days basically maintaining low stress days and more like recovery and there's like spectrums of where all this stuff um falls in but like charlie francis had kind of made popular here in the 90s yeah. he talked about the um, central nervous system like giving it small demands a small um a small stimulus of high demand just kind of sprinkled in throughout the training year um that's kind of like where this all started so a lot of the russian systems started using a system that was very similar to that and that's what he does so the high stress training day so let's say so he would do these like squat pyramids so basically you usually between 70 and 75 percent you go like three reps and five then seven then nine then eight then six then four and you're taking two minute breaks in between each um, similar to like a dynamic effort day in terms of like what it feels like from like a physiological perspective, but like okay. one of those would be every 10 days, you'd still be hitting 80 to 85% pretty frequently. And like once every seven to 10 days, at least 60% of the volume came from variations, 20% complex, 20% accessories. Um, so it was, it was managed in a very similar way. Like, I don't know, the longer you do this, the more you look at programs, you realize they're all the same. It's just like fine tuning stuff that they kind of differ on. Um, but it really kind of taught me, like, managing the stress levels of an athlete more than anything else. I think the the shortfalls that I found with it as a coach were, one, people who get into powerlifting, I feel, get into it because they were picked last in dodgeball growing up, and they have no athletic abilities whatsoever. Okay. So they're like, I'll just – I'll do this sport. And they tend to be, like, fucking good at it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: so they just don't have a strong base. So like all that volume just kind of geared to the complexes, even with the variations. So like his variations that were always same stance, same grip um, done just like your comp lifts. Um Like it just, it just didn't fix technique and like people who've just never competed, they just get nervous lifting heavy weights. So like not touching that 90 plus at times. And even then like 90% is not enough, man. Like I know that like, I don't get that tingling in my pants till it gets around like 97, 98, 99% um, of my one RM. So they just weren't touching weights like that, except before a test, which was before a meet. So they're already nervous about the meet. Um, So like managing the psychological pieces of an amateur lifter with no base was very difficult, like in terms of that system. And so when I had asked Jacob about it, he talked about the basic. So the Dynamo Club was this like school system. So basically, let's say you wanted to be a weightlifter, they put you in these schools and like weightlifting was like math and science is just a subject you did. And so for the first few years of development, they basically do like gymnastics, climbing ropes, swimming, like basic like movement based stuff. And then when they start learning the lifts, they learn with like a broomstick PVC pipe, it's just technique, but it's like all GPP stuff. And then slowly the GPP stuff kind of decreases, the sports specific stuff kind of increases. But even as younger lifters, when they go to competitions, they're judged on technique, not on how much weight they're lifting. So yes. there's this this whole, like, psychological piece to it that, like, you do it right before you do it better. And then from there, obviously, they build it up, build it up, build it up. Um, and so the programs that you're seeing from Shaco are for, like, national – I mean, he was the national team coach. Mm-hmm. It's the cream of the crop. So, like, going through these schools so – it's like, me, I'm in – below average power lifters. So like, I would have got to this point where they would have handed me a certificate and been like, Hey, you're a class three lifter. We don't have any more need for you in this school. Good luck with your future endeavors. So you can remember, that's the cream of the crop that was able to kind of withstand the same way with the Bulgarian system, right? It's the cream of the crop that withstood the, how hard the training was. Um, And so what I ended up realizing, and this goes back to like going to school, And just working with athletes a lot of the time, like you had that pyramid where it's like GPP at the bottom, the specific stuff up top. And it's just like, man, these things aren't getting fixed because they have no base. They have no competitive base. They have no psychological base. Like there's, it's just not working the way that it should. So we started to make more tweaks where we started lifting heavier more often, which then it's less volume. So you can get more volume from accessories and over time, you can kind of see how this leads into uh, the conjugate system.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah that <clears throat> so just the way that you just described about that or even talked about general specific and even the just the way that you discuss that the first thing that talked in my hand is like hmm, this sounds an awful lot like long-term athletic development conjugate based approaches to building lifters and i maybe i feel I'm not old by any means, but I almost feel old to the fact where like kids that are now starting to power lift, like you said, are obviously not. Maybe they did some sports in high school. Maybe they didn't, but they start really, truly picking up a barbell for the first time. And like you said, they immediately go to the comp lifts. And while I do think understanding the technique of the lift is important, you do need to understand the general basics because when you can make progress pretty quickly that way, if you kind of squat and bench and deadlift, well, but outside of that, if you've never done any other major variation of those lifts, I feel that they don't understand they're leaving a ton on the table of what could be in five years if they're looking at this from a long-term perspective. Because I just watch them, and I'm like, I, if they bench three times a week, for example, I don't know how my shoulders and elbows could take it. Brandon, I'm only 35, but even when I was 25, I don't think I would have been able to take it as well as I would like to have thought I could. Um, And how long term sustainable is that? What do you do when that doesn't work anymore? Do you, you go to four times a week? You know, you have to get, obviously, you got to get smarter in your programming. But if you need more volume, you can only bench press so much specifically before you just don't have time to do it or your body starts to break down. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to get there is from going to see Louie and Shaco, having the background with Shaco. What were some of the similarities that obviously you see and currently use? But then, you know, what are some of the also the differences um, that you're like, this was definitely worthwhile to take different blends from each one of them to whatever it is to how you choose a program?
1: Yeah, so that's actually uh, kind of a fun story. So obviously, like when I was doing the Shaco stuff, I'm just competitive and confrontational by nature anyway. So I was like, fuck everybody else like conjugate sucks. West side sucks. Like it's for equipped lifters. They don't like, I said all the same stuff that everybody else said. Um, so Shaco, I forget what year it was. So it was the second time he came to TPS. He had gone to West side before and like spent all day with Louie or a weekend with Louie. And they had conversation. Actually Louie increased the deadlift volume because of these conversations with Shaco and Shaco took pictures of all his equipment so that he could make it back in, Russia. So, like, one thing people need to understand, too, about the Russian system, they didn't have bands, chains, safety squat bars. I did a voiceover for uh, um, KK in Kirill, like, lifting 20-minute little documentary thing. KK literally trained in a bomb shelter in Latvia. So, they had very limited equipment. There were no windows in the place. You couldn't even get, like, cell phone service in there. Um, So it's like an old like radio that they had wired in Um, and at the it's called the Moscow Aviation Institute. So this is where like Milanochev and some of like the bigger names that came out of Russia trained at the leg press was held up by kettlebells because it was off balance. Like they didn't have money that they really like put into these gyms. So because they didn't have bands and chains, they used pauses in their lifts to change that force velocity, force posture curve of the lifts themselves to get the variation. So what people need to realize is like, you gotta, what do you have available to you? And like, how can you best maximize that for results? So I I think what Louis did is obviously it's years and decades later, but he manufactured his own equipment when he needed something, he created it right so that's just kind of where you start to see that branch happen um but both of them were using the equipment that they had to the best of their abilities they used a lot of variation in general there were high stress days low stress days so like i remember hearing that louis changed and started using the dynamic effort method because they couldn't max out twice a week like the west side culver city group they would max out one day and then they'd max out the second day but be to like a high box like a decreased range of motion, exercise, and they might do triples and fives instead of singles, but they were maxing out twice. Louis just kind of took that. It wasn't working well, so then made some adjustments to the program where Louie used bands and chains. The Russians used pauses because they didn't have bands and chains that they were using um, at the time. So, like, Shaco goes to West Side, and though, so when he came back, I was like, hey, you know, how was meeting Louis and all of that? And he basically like said how much he respected him for like what he's done in the sport and that powerlifting is big enough for multiple methods. Um, but he also was just discussing that like the priority of the systems was just different. Like Louis was force. Louis's priority was building strength where Shaco's was building technique. And so, but both of them were doing it with high level lifters. Like, they they weren't doing this with beginners but russia russia had a system that they came up through so they had a base already created so the need for gpp work um wasn't as huge as it might have been for like people coming into west side but also they did blocks of higher gpp work even with the russian national team after bigger meets and stuff like that um but he basically was like you know, you just, it's one strength, one's technique. So you have this philosophy based off of it, but you're using the same methods to kind of write the programs to just deliver your philosophy and coaching. And that these methods, they both work. They're just geared in different ways. Uh, Well, structured in different ways, but they're all using the max effort method, the dynamic effort method, the repetition effort method. They're all using variation. They're all using variation of intensity of training days. There is a phasic structure to it. Um, and so that's when I started learning more about the dynamo club. So the actual 1970s Soviet weightlifting group. And so when they used their variations, they had about 40 lifters in there and they were using about 40 different variations, but each lifter had their own coach and they actually came up with these like mathematical formulas that showed a coefficient with how well a certain, um, variation of the exercise actually transferred over to their competition lifts. So the, we'll say the more specific it was to them, the higher that coefficient. So they set it up in a phasic structure where the max effort lifts would start more general. And then as competitions drew near, it would get more and more maximum. So the intensity, even though it's still 100%, right? Like if I do a SSB close stance, low box squat, or I do a, my comp stance, straight bar box squat, they're both at 100% that I'm trying to get to a max effort day, let's say. But one of them's way fucking harder than the other right Mm -hmm. they're not they're not built equally right that that conflict is going to be a much harder exercise to do so there is this like ramping up of intensity that happened over time and they would do it around major competitions um so i kind of took that phasic structure from the dynamo club and use it within the structure of our conjugate programs as well as like i mean i think you start with what Louis did. There's a reason why he did it the way he did it. There's 50 years worth of freaking experience in there. Um, but like the thing is, is like the people who went to West Side, they're fucking maniacs, man. They love yeah. to lift. They're lifting hard, and they're built a certain way. So I'm gonna ramble here, but so the the German sprinters, one of the things that they would do, so this is who Charlie Francis learned from in the 70s. Um, but they would look for people with explosive nervous systems. So they'd want people with tempers and that were just fucking maniacs to run their high-low approach that Charlie Francis um, ended up running with his sprinters. So, like, Westside's that personality, right? You're getting these fucking maniacs going in there with the very twitchy nervous systems. Um, so it's it's set up very well for that personality. They also had a lot of experience coming in. They were elite lifters when they came into West Side. So one of the things I realized is, like, Amateur lifters without a base, just they may not be able to recover the same way. So we'll take that phasic structure that like I stole from the Dynamo Club. And like earlier on, it'll be like higher volume because let's face it, a close stance, low box SSB squat. You're probably getting three less singles at than you do like a comp squat. So the volume is way lower. So you can actually push up. We might do back downs of that stuff. Um, But then as it gets more specific, so let's say we're going into like a, a comp squat deadlift bench. Like a phase with those things I'll stretch it out further just like shako would so instead of it having to be on Monday because it's max effort lower and then the next Monday max effort lower we might do max maybe hit a squat max effort lower week one day one and then we don't we just do a nice easy day day one the following week so that's seven days and then 11 12 days later we'll do our day three and maybe that's where we throw that deadlift max effort in so we just space it out a little bit more very similar to like How Shaco would um, vary the loads of training days, training weeks, um, even like a training month, two months. Like sometimes, like some people, it's like, I love the story when Greg Penora talks about how Louis, like, you're not even touching a barbell. Like, you just need to get bigger. And so he just made him do bodybuilding stuff for six. That's an elite lifter already. Yeah. Right. Like, if he's okay doing that, like, you know, six foot, 145 pound. You know, Joe Dickhead can definitely do some freaking bodybuilding work for, you know, a four week block and you'll be all right. Take the bar off your back. So, like, even from that long term athletic development perspective, like you still got to sprinkle that stuff in at times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's from the phasic structure, like you mentioned, that's probably the biggest thing that I learned from Louis as well. Whenever I went there was that he was he was very big of like you said, you you can kind of push things a year round, but you make it more what you need towards the meet as it gets there. And then once the meets over, um, you know, things really kind of pull back a little bit. And that's, that's also what I try to do with the lifters that I work with is when a meets over four to six weeks, like, yeah, we're not going to squat bench a deadlift. Like you just literally did this at a very high level training wise for anywhere from eight, 12, maybe even 16 weeks in preparation for it. In the grand scheme of thing, taking a month or six weeks of not doing that and just letting your joints recover, put on some mass in places that you probably need it. Because the good thing is, once the meat's over, we know where you suck at, so we immediately have feedback of what needs improved, Not only from maybe a technical perspective, uh, maybe even a technical perspective in terms of your mentality. You know, are you missing lifts when you should be making them? You know, how can we address that? But then also from a physical perspective, if you're missing in particular areas. We now know what those areas are literally accurately to the last weekend that you just competed. So now we can bring those up for a couple of months. And then when we get back to our, what I would say, you know, your normal max effort or dynamic, however you want to have your, your training laid out, once you get back to that, now you have a more valuable approach to get to that, that point. Um, and it sounds very similar to, like we said, like what Shaco did. I don't think people understand that with the way that he programmed that there are phases into to training. I just feel like there's t- maybe it's just because powerlifting is getting a little more popular with the younger crowd to where like when it meets over, I see people back into just immediately comp squatting, comp deadlifting and comp benching. And I'm just like, you know, you're not looking at this through the lens that these people ideally thought about it. And like you said, I guess the equipment comes down to a factor, but most people nowadays, if you're going to a relatively decent gym, you can provide variety very, very easily. They're not in those storage sheds like you kind of mentioned. There was, um,
1: you know, the other thing too that I think, well, one, I think people are performing for Instagram and not building strength, right? They're always just trying to have this Steven Spielberg directed reel at the end of training. Yeah. Um, which is, It's only going to get you so far. And what you end up seeing, I think a lot is, so like progressive overload, this was another thing that was very similar between Shaco and Louie, is they ran the same numbers over and over and over and over. So like the first month, let's say you're coming off of a meet and you hit some nice PRs and you're using percentage-based training. That first month with Shaco might be really hard. Second month would be easier. Third month easier. And then all of a sudden you're on cruise control and you're really moving these weights. That's an increase in efficiency, right? Yep. So you can do more you can do more volume and typically what ends up happening is the 20 percent accessory work you can push a little bit harder because you're feeling good after your main lives um, so it kind of almost works in like a reverse engineering structure like that but louie the same thing with the dynamic waves right just over and over and over and over and over you're hitting the same weights. you don't need to add weight just move it faster um dave hop on a table talk i really liked the way that he said this he talked about conquering weights Right, where it's not, you're not just trying to beat what you did the last time. You want to conquer a weight because if you conquer a weight, you can revisit it anytime you want. Right. And I think having that perspective with the max effort work and as well as the dynamic effort work and even accessory work, like it's really important. I think what ends up happening is is you have a very young crowd that coaches and a young crowd that lifts. And it's like, I got to hit five pounds more because one, it's going to get more likes on Instagram. Right. Because you're performing for Instagram. But I got to hit five pounds more. I got to hit five pounds more. And what ends up happening, and this is why I tell all my lifters all the time like if you're hitting PRs, your technique better start looking better. Like you should if if you started really narrow on a squat, you should see your feet starting to move out a little bit because your hips and your hamstrings are getting stronger. Right? Your bench, the same thing. Then we should see the arms creeping out, the arch, the bar path. Instead of it flying back towards your face, it should be a much more straight driving into the bench right? It's a vertical jump of your upper body, right? If I jump into the ground, I come straight up. The same should happen with your upper back. That bar should start moving up. You should start seeing that straight line bar path. Like you should start seeing these changes. If it's, if you're gaining in strength and losing in technique, I mean, you're walking the plank, man. There's not much time left. And what ends up happening is, is you can see it with everybody. Like, it'll be like, oh, they have a, Nice looking total. The, their lifts look decent, and then it's like, oh, they hit another big PR. Their lifts are starting to break down. Then all of a sudden, it's like they hit a big PR. They're very happy about it. Maybe they win a big meet, but now their lifts look like absolute horseshit. And it's like, where where do you go now? You've done all this volume to get to this point, and your whole philosophy is you got to do more to get more out of yourself. Where the fuck do you go if you're doing that many lifts at those intensities, and you think you need to keep where? There is nowhere to go. So sometimes it's not even like anything more than maybe you haven't got hurt. Maybe you haven't really even had a lull, but like, where are you going with it? If you're doing all of these lifts every week, you're going to do more. There's a breaking point to it. Like at some point you got to just, you got to understand that there are other things to change other than volumes and intensities. Like exercise selection matters, the tools, the velocity of the lifts matters. So you're going to realize like bands and chains are going to be something you're going to have to utilize in your training at some point. Like you just, you have to. And so when you look at Westside and everybody's like, this stuff's stupid, it's not specific. Those guys have been lifting for like 20 years. Of course they're doing stupid shit. They're varying a lift for somebody with a huge training age. Like we're not using, I mean, when I went to Westside and lifted for that weekend, Louis had these like mattress. I mean, they had to be 18 inches thick. These like little mattress things that I had to stand on. With an SSB, there's like 250 pounds of band tension, band tension I've never had on my back before, and box squats. I'm like, I'm standing on these things, and I'm like all shaking all over the place and stuff. And it's like my lifters aren't doing that, but he's doing this with a group of lifters who've broken world records who've been doing this a long time. Yes. Like that variation just increases over the lifespan of the athlete. Like you you can grab an SSB and do a box squat, and it's, not, it's still a squat. At some point, a squat is a squat, man. And, like, if – I mean, the, the older I've gotten in the sport, the more I've realized you really don't need to comp lift very often. It's not a complex movement. You're not an athlete. You're a power lifter. And, like, I mean, I'll go, like, six weeks without doing a free squat sometimes, and it's like I'll hit a free squat, and it feels absolutely freaking fine. And I do, like, for me, my background, my athletic background, I can figure out variations pretty quick. I don't need to do them twice. Like the fact that I've played multiple sports, I've played multiple sports at the highest of levels. I can figure out a variation pretty quick. I may not be the strongest person in the gym, but, you know, by the end of even that day with Louie, I'm doing something. Band touch I've never touched, standing on those things, I end up taking like, it was like 115% at the top of my best squat for a set of 10. Like, I, I can figure that stuff out pretty quick. So somebody who hasn't played sports, that increase in variation is just going to completely fuck with them and they're not going to get anything out of it. So when you have a group that has no base whatsoever, a very little bit of variation goes a very long way and you just maximize that and then you can just build off of it. But you know what? Sometimes do something stupid because because it, it's fun also. Like I'm not saying don't ever like, I think Dave Tate on one of the podcasts, he said, conjugate the fuck out of something or whatever. Like just, yeah, put a bunch of bands on it and, and just have some fun, but you don't need a ton of it. Like it doesn't have to look like what Westside looks like. Right. And people fall into that trap all the time. Like, our structure starts that way, but it doesn't look like that. in individuals, you know, you can't control life. So like, let's say I got somebody who's like, I mean, I have people getting PhDs. Let's say they they got to defend their freaking dissertation or something like that. We're not pounding out max effort lifts every week. You know, maybe you're stopping one short, maybe there's increased distance between the exposures of them. Maybe you're doing more like Anderson type squats that just don't have any centric that are easy to recover from. Cause you, nobody can lift any fucking weight like that anyways. And then maybe the accessories are just really ramping up in volume because you can recover from them. But guess what? Either you get more fit or life settles down and all of a sudden now you have a base you can just really ramp it up and build off of. And then you just settle in, right? You conquer those weights. You keep repeating, 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 conquer those weights. And then all of a sudden you've you've weathered the storm in a way in which you can hit a PR anytime you sign up for a freaking meet. Um, And I think the thing is, is like the flexibility of some of these like high frequency comp lift programs. it relies on volume, right? So if you're really pushing it, like, where do you go? If you miss a day or life stressful or like, and the only answer is like, oh, well, I hurt my hips. So now I'm just going to, if you're a 600 pound squatter, you're not getting stronger squat on 200, 300 pounds because you're pain free. It's not doing anything. It's creating this recovery cost without any stimulus for adaptation. Do something else like front squat with an SSB to a box, like just do something else. And you'll realize that it's so weak that you'll just get all these beginner gains yep. on training again. Like, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. That it's become like politics.
0: Yeah. You. I think that's probably a good way to, a good way to put it. I, I try to, with some of the younger lifters in my facility, cause they're, they're definitely younger than 30. <clears throat> Most of them are using the, basically an undulating approach and you know they're they're even doing rpes on like accessory work and i'm like i think you're missing the point of one rpe but two the point that accessory work should be pushed hard because it's easy to recover from if you're not able to recover from your accessory work we got a way bigger issue there's there's something wrong nutritionally sleep metabolically like GPPY, something is wrong that you can't recover from your accessory work. Your accessory work has to build up over time, obviously. But like if you're worried about managing fatigue and accessory work, then you probably need to look at something else and push the accessory work as much as you can, because then you might be able to actually do less in your main work. And then therefore, when you actually go to use that main work, now you're going to get more ump from it. And then now you don't have to, like you said, rely on the volume of the comp lifts to get you that progress that you're looking for. Come meet day, now you can hyper specialize into the uh, the intensity of the lift as you get closer because you've obviously got to take way more ninety percent lifts to super compensate for meet day that's just a way of peaking works but now you're in shape to be able to do it without like you said the technical breakdown the issues that you're going to see come meat day are very less likely to occur and that ultimately i think is what sets you up for a good meet if you're going in mentally strong not missing lifts technically looking good and you're in shape enough to do the meet the way that you need to you're probably going to have a good day this <laughs> that simple i think
1: one of my training partners we were talking about this literally this week um, but he, he competed in January and he shows up at the mean. He's feeling like, like feverish, just not feeling good, like sick, but because of how we train all the time, right. He's been lifting a long time too. So this isn't like a newer lifter, but it's like, all right, well, you know what, let's go nine for nine, just hit a two and a half kilogram PR on all three of the lifts and just walk away. Right. So it becomes an easy day where you can still go out there. You can still outperform what you've ever done before. Nice, easy, seven and a half kilo total PR while feeling like shit you walk away, you recover for a week and you just get back into training. It's just like a, another training day, but that's, that's conquering weights, right? If you, if you have to go through these like large swings of performance, where it's like, you're so burnt out. Cause you've done so much volume, monotonous volume after a meet that, you know, you take so much time off and then getting back into it. It's hard to ramp back up. Um, it, you know, you get those little nagging things that are popping up and it's like, man, I'm not motivated. And I think that's what draws people out of the sport is just there. It's, it's this, it's people just one, not understanding where they need to be comfortable, right? There's the weights you conquer those stable top end weights. This is basically our second attempts, right? You should never miss a second attempt. If you're in equipment, that's different, but never miss a second attempt. Right. But those third attempts, yeah, you're peaking to try to hit the highest third, third attempts at that competition. But those seconds, they should be something you can hit all the fucking time. And if you can't, there's a problem with your training, right? Like either you got to look at recovery, you got to get more fit, you got to whatever. There's a a lot of various sleep more. There's a lot of variables that come into this. But I think, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I I wish people would one, stick with the sport a little bit longer. And like, to me, when I look at this, it's like, man, I understand why you're quitting. Cause once you get to that point where like what I was saying before, the techniques breaking down or you're getting hurt and you're just at this breaking point, there's nowhere to go. What are you going to do? You've, you know, especially when you politicize training methods where it's like West side's not for raw lifter, drug free lifter, whatever people say. And it's like, well, now you, you've pigeonholed yourself to have no options. Yep. So you just quit, you you go do no gi training for six months and then you're running five K's
0: and then whatever. Like I don't know, man, not for me. Yeah. Um, I <clears throat> when it comes to the like the, the, the technical breakdown, to me, when it <clears throat> when I try to explain like on your, on your training days that are maybe not the the maximal days, you know, you're leaving a little bit left in the tank. <clears throat> the I think people look at that RPE number as this is how hard it should feel and don't take into account that technical breakdown also is subject to RPE. Because if, you, if it feels like an eight, but it looks like absolute dog shit, then it's not an eight anymore. It's now a nine or a nine and a half because you're, you're compensating your efficiency of the movement to get the RPE of the way the weight should feel. And chances are, if it feels like an eight, but it looks bad, that shows you how long you've probably trained with bad movement patterns. Because your your nervous system is saying, hey, this doesn't feel that heavy, but the way your body is reacting to make the barbell physically move so that either you don't eat shit or you you know don't dump a bar on your face, whatever it is. Then, then now you're, you're in, like you said, you're in that no man zone of you either have to be very, very humble and say, I need to go back three steps, clean stuff up, pick the right variations that's going to let me clean these up focus on my accessory work, whatever those little things are, and then re-slow cook back in towards wherever those numbers are. Now, like you said, you're going to have a better base and a better foundation technically to then move forward. But I think with the younger crowd, that, like you said, that doesn't get likes on Instagram. So I think maybe social structure is beginning to to come in to where athletes, like you said, care more about that than they actually do, the way that their lifts look or wanting to be in this long term. But from the high frequency crowd, I've also I just maybe you can name somebody, but I can't name somebody that's like past 42, 43, that's still using a very high frequency training approach and is in still in one piece. But that's mm. maybe here nor there, but that's the way that I try to sell it to the young guys. Is, but I was like, if you look at the conjugate method and people that are still using that, they started using that in their 20s and they're now in their mid to late 40s, some people even in their 50s. And guess what? They're still training really freaking hard and enjoying their training, and they're still going to meet and performing at high levels consistently, they're they're gonna get banged up here and there. But for the most part, for their age, if they're in their 50s doing that and they're still in one piece, I think that says a lot to the resiliency of the system itself.
1: It's a great point. Like I'm 40 years old. I started lifting at 32. I've had multiple surgeries before I even started lifting weights. And I mean, I can train as hard as anybody at 40 years old with that injury background running running conjure like i feel much better now and i know i couldn't do it i could not do it the other way around if i had to do more like high frequency stuff but we talk about that all the time like i i who's done it a long time like that
0: it's the, the only, only person that comes to my mind is mike Tushier, and he's changed his training philosophy since he wrote the rts book and even then it's you can tell, tell there was some conjugate stuff into that book but Listening to him at Swiss, he's now making all of his decisions solely based off of VBT. So now he's keeping that higher frequency. What I would say, it's still higher than what I would probably do, but he's got the GPP for it. But he's actually using his VBT measures to call his weights, to call his auto regulation. And that's letting him stay in one piece where, as you and I know, Ninety-nine percent of lifters are not using a BBT device in any measure, let alone for their whole training system. So, he
1: also went six years without back squatting and without deadlifting much. He just front squatted and did pull ups, and like to me, that's a lot of base building right there. Yeah, right. Like he had to take a step back from it and do other things. And also, like I really like his idea with the pivot blocks, where you know you might remove the barbell for a third of the training block length, right? So two weeks of just not touching a barbell after six weeks of, of training. I think that's a, uh, a good way of doing it. Um, But even with um, you know, there's just, I don't know if this is the athlete in me, but like, I mean, I've used like VBT stuff, but there's just something about like athlete intuition that I think is just really important. It needs to be harvested. It needs to be grown. Like I, I think for one, like conjugate, like as lifters get older, they also get smarter. Right. So they start realizing where to put their efforts, when to pull back, um, you know, making just better training decisions. So I do think that that plays a major role where I think what we see with like a lot of the higher frequency stuff is like, one, lifters are outsourcing their effort. Right. So if I tell you this is max effort and you're scared of weights, you're always stopping one short, you're not doing a max effort lift. I'm, I'm giving you the ability you got to do one more. You got to do, and this is why training partners are so important, right? Yeah. Um, but for them, if I tell you 80% for four sets of two, you're outsourcing your effort. I'll tell you, most, most people too, and they just don't want to do accessories. So right. they put RPEs on them. and let's say it's an, I don't even know what they put for RPEs on an accessory, but let's say they put RPE8 on an accessory. It's probably like an RPE2. Like it's not a, even probably close to where they need to be because they yeah. don't like doing it. But there's life skills there, man. Do the things that you don't like to do and do them like you really want to do them. And that's where like progress happens. That's where the the good shit, like that's where it comes from.
0: Yeah. There's, Um, there's a group of lifters in my gym that um, I programmed for and, you know, I, I told them that I would, this has been several years ago now, but I'm still programming for them where, you know, I told them like, Hey, I will, if you guys want me to do individualized programming for you guys, I will. But I was like, if you guys are training together, you guys, honestly, especially until a meet even gets close, you guys just need to run the same going to run the same training program. And you guys can make it a giant dick measuring contest, compete against each other, coach each other up, which one of the guys was a former employee of mine. Uh, and the other two actually have, like I said, a good amount of training experience, uh, especially now. They've been at the gym for three, four years uh, at a competitive level. And they make the best progress out of anybody that I program for. Like it's not even close. And it's because they literally push themselves every day on their max effort. They try to, they either try to one up each other, or if I give them a back down of like one AMRAP in like the off season, it's going to be balls to the wall for that AMRAP. Every, the first person's probably going to get fucked because the second, the third person are going to do everything they can to get more reps than the guy before them. And then that obviously has them push their accessory work a little bit. And when they buy, and I, I don't have to give them as much accessory work because I know how hard they're working on their accessory work. Where like if you're not gonna do as much, then I might have to give you more to try to get that volume from somewhere. Um, and to me, I think that just says like the hyper specialized programming, it can matter to a degree, especially if you're training by yourself and you don't have an honest eye. But if you've got training partners, if you guys are running a generalized program, like you said, that's focusing on your squat, your bench, your deadlift, using the right methods, things are cycling the way they're supposed to. There's seasonality in your training, you're gonna make progress and then having that person next to you push you is going to give you that extra oomph come meet day after you stack those 52 weeks out of every single year
1: the other the other thing too like so i give everybody one program and then from there based off of their individual needs we fucking talk about it i'm not going in and changing a program four fucking times because your little stuff's happening so let's have a conversation about so you know how to make these adjustments um these adjustments in the future um to me that's that's really really important but also, like, I think, you know, when you're using, like, velocity-based training, well, one, like, the basis of any program working, there's there's human elements to it, right? If the effort's not there, the consistency is not there, I don't care what exercise. Most people just need that well-rounded program. You all can do the same thing. And, like, with the velocity-based training, stop looking at the device. You should know what it fucking feels like. Like, I know what speed work needs to feel like so that I can put the right weight on the bar. I don't need a device to do that. And like Louis was one of the first ones to use Tendo units in America. There's a reason why he stopped using them. Right. Cause eventually he could just look at him and his intuition said it all. Yes. And I think ultimately like what, and I don't know, man, I'm going to be that guy cause I'm 40. Who's just going to bash on Gen Z. But like, I think one thing when you're paying a coach, you're, it's now the coach's responsibility for your success. So they, they get this built in scapegoat, right. There's no accountability with it. Oh, well this isn't working. Well, I'll adjust it on my end little whatever. Right. Instead of like, Hey, you're in the moment. I'm not with you 24 hours a day. If your life is like this, these are the decisions you need to make. And these are the conversations we need to have. So I actually run my group. I send multiple emails a week. Um, I used to do these like biweekly meetings and stuff where we just discuss training concepts. So the more that you're in it, the more that you do it, just learn how to adjust. You need to learn how to adjust on the fly. Like what, what if your VBT stop stops working that day? And first of all, like, I, I so Louie always said, what, what do you say? Don't have a 10 cent squat and $200 shoes.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, I'm telling everybody don't have a $400 VBT device when you have a 300 dot score. Like yeah. just, just learn. You don't need that shit. Just learn how to train, use your coach as a resource so you can learn how to do these things. Right. Okay. Well, if this is feeling like this. What do I do? And like, to me that that's how you get longevity in this sport. and That's how, how you continually see progress and like self-determination theory, man. People want to feel competent. So that's hard in the beginning. Right. But like there has to be that period of that. But then on top of that, they want their, their autonomy, man. They want to be able to make, and, and that's, what's going to keep them, keep them coming. And half the time, like I have fun as I, I joke around. Cause like I have this, this kid, he just, he just told 2000 raw a month or two ago and he'll be like, what do you think of doing this? And I'll be like, that's fucking stupid. And then he'll just do it anyways. And then, you know, for me, it's like, well, if it works, I look good as a coach. If it doesn't work, I can just be like, I told you so. So it takes all the pressure, yeah. all the pressure off of me. Uh, but I want them to be able to make their decisions, even if they're stupid. Like, I, I don't want them to, like, kill themselves. But, like, in the beginning, dude, you're going to see gains no matter what. The first three years are fucking easy. Like, make your mistakes. Learn, learn about, like, just training theory. Like, I have this, this kid. He's really new. He's been doing it a year. And I was like, I don't know, the older I get to, the more I just don't want to deal with certain stuff. So I'm like, dude, just lift for a year. Don't even fucking talk to me. You can ask me questions. I don't care about your training, about just like training philosophy and theory. And, you know, what's the purpose of this? Like, let's learn general things, but just train for a year. I don't want to hear about your fucking train. And then finally, he like retests his lifts and his techniques better. And he's like, you're right. I just needed to train for a year. But he read Book of Methods. He, he asked questions after reading Book of Methods and like just people don't want to do that, man. They just want content for the internet. They're going to be in it for a few years anyways. And like, then they're going to go on and do their note-gee training. And, and like, that's fine if somebody wants that or whatever. And that's what they're looking for. But at the end of the day, those like, and then you get their coaches who just have a revolving door around beginners all the time. who are like, well, this method has worked for my, for my lifters. And it's like, dude, your lifters are beginners. They can roll around on the floor for 30 minutes. And because of the increased ab strength, they're squatting more weight. Like, it's not, you're not a better coach because of it. You're not like just, you know, I think the internet's great in, in some ways, but I think in other ways it's changed the culture in a way where we're just not in tune to like, where everybody's so like data, data, data. And it's like, man, just all these guys were proven right by science later on. Like just, just develop your intuition, be a good lifter. Cause that's where it's fun. You know?
0: Yeah. yeah. The, the younger guys that I see, cause like, I, I do have a younger guy and he was pretty set on me doing his programming. I'm like, Hey, we're going to keep things very general. If, if it was me, he also, I will say that he's not like, um, he's interested in learning about training, but he's not like trying to go into the weeds kind of like what we do, which I think I said, you know, that's what coaches do. We obviously do it because we love it. We want to be in the weeds and know the minutia, but he's just like, I just literally don't know how to, to train for, powerlifting so i just want some we gotta do in general programs and you know nothing overly crazy but it blows my mind to me like you said the people that have like super low dot scores and they've either never heard or ran five three one they've never read like the book of methods they've never uh looked up any of chad wesley smith's from juggernaut which is nice my opinion is more beginner level focused um like they've never read RTS. Like these are some of these ba- basic books that are literally going to take you 45 minutes to read. And they're going to teach you about like you said, the intuition of training. And now you can become more educated about how to make those decisions when you need to make them. And then if you know how to make those decisions, now your training is more optimized every time you walk into the gym. And like you said, even if you have a coach You don't have to send a message to ask a question and wait 20 minutes to make a decision. You can just make the decision on the fly and deal with it retrospectively, whether it's the right right one or the wrong one. It it may not matter at the end of the day, but then that's when the learning can occur of how to train. And then if you happen to also be around training partners, that also teaches you that intuition of how to train because you'll be able to see other people make decisions in the moment based upon what's happening at their shoulder, their hip, their knee, whatever's bothering them um you know my stuff feels different every single day so what i really have planned going in it usually changes almost every single day to some degree whether it be the load the volume the exercise selection the you know the abdominal work whether i am doing more or doing less um the mobility or tissue work that all changes and if you don't spend time like you said trying to get that intuition of truly learning how to train and just keep getting programs into you when you don't do that anymore you might still out a squat bench and deadlift but when it comes to like Physically going to the gym, even if it's just retrospectively for a good health. Outside of squat, bench, and deadlift, you may not know how to pivot things based on how you feel when you get older. Um, and I, I want my people to be able. If you don't want to power lift into your forties, I want you to be able to take really long-term health solutions of learning how to train in a weight room two or three days a week methodically, so that you don't look like one of those jackasses on social media. But also, to your again, you're getting return on investment from your time in the weight room. And if you're going to train for powerlifting ultimately that's what you got to do is figure out how to do the most effective training session for that given day at that given time so that you can come back in the following day and still optimize and repeat for a decade or however longer
1: yeah and that's that's the um you know i think a big part of education too is like when you get these lifters in they don't hit a pr on a given at a given meet or something like that and then they're they're kicking rocks and they're blaming whoever, Um, you know, to me, that's just, that's a lack of training skill. You just don't understand how things work, right. Where. So William Kramer, who he spent some time at UConn with one of my like old colleagues who told me this story about how growth happens. So he actually measured his baby every single night with a tape measure, measured his baby to show that growth doesn't happen gradually. It happens in large spurts. But when you zoom way out, you see the gradual part. So let's say, you know, it's why it's called a growth spurt, right? But like, let's say baby girls, I'm making these numbers up for easy math, but like 10 inches over three years. But there were two periods where there were four inch gains and then just very sprinkled in another two inch one, right? So you, you had these three events that led to those 10 inches in a prolonged period of time, right? The same happens with totals you hit this total. Yeah. Maybe you hit five pounds more the next time, but you probably could have hit that five pounds before if you really tried. Um, But like, it it takes, it takes time, right? Like adaptation takes time. It's going to build like a storm in the background. So like, if you have this training skill and you're constantly just kind of analyzing your training and you're having good days and you realize when you're kind of in one of these, these building positions that like, Hey, I got to stay healthy. i got to stack wins. I got to build momentum. Um, so like, uh, you know, I tell my group five pound PRs, they're smoking mirrors, dude, it's just to keep you motivated during that period of time. So leave a little in the tank. So, you know, a few months later, when you do the same variation, again, you beat it by five pounds, you feel good about yourself. Right? But you're probably gonna hit that before. But it's just, it's, it's understanding that process that like, today is not the most important day. So instead of just throwing that like, extra five, 10 pounds on there and really grinding something out. And then the next time you come a- around to it, it's 20 pounds less than it was the time before that because you're just not you're just not building momentum. You're not making good training decisions, and you get upset about it because you just don't understand the training process. That yes, we talk about gradual, right? If you zoom out, it's like okay, well, people add twenty to thirty pounds a year on their total, but you'll see that there were just like these three to four large increases in their total over that longer period of time or something like that. Um, but like understanding that that's the process. It just it takes a lot of the pressure off and it takes some of the emotions out of it. So that when you like, Hey, I didn't hit a PR today, but I understand I'm in that building phase. So I need to stay healthy. I need to push my accessories. Uh, these are the decisions I, I need to be making to stack these wins so that eventually, you know, when you do have that meat yet, you, you put 40, 50 pounds on a total. Um, so yeah, I, I think a lot of it, like not learning and outsourcing all of that stuff, it just leads to these, like feeling bad about yourself because you're not hitting a PR. And also that's the, you're performing on Instagram. So it's hard to go out there and be like, well, I didn't have the meat I had today. I'm sorry to all my friends and family. And, and like, dude, we're just, we're just lifting weights, like have some fun, learn about it, understand that it's a process, enjoy the process part of it, make some friends. um, And it goes a lot better.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the last thing I think I want to talk about is, your own training and I guess how, how you choose to program using the conjugate method, everybody's got their own little, I want to say tweaks, but they've obviously take, again, beautiful thing about a system is that you can adapt it towards what not only you like, but also what you need. And then you can stack those up over time. And then you've got some ways that you might do something differently than other people. Um, but ultimately, like you said, the, the, the meat potatoes of a system are always there uh, from a, Conjugate perspective and, you know, now that you're in, in single ply, I guess, kind of just walk me through how you go about looking at how you're laying out your your weekly aspect of training in terms of how you're making decisions on terms of uh, maybe, uh, you know, bars or rotations. But then whatever you go to actually get ready for a meet, maybe anything different that you do that uh, you've kind of learned over time that you've had really good success with. So I, I get coached by
1: Laura now. Okay. Um, so one of the things like for me is I didn't want to think about like that for my training because I do it with my group and I program my group differently than I was doing for me, but I've always run like a very West side conjugate format. Um, so some of the like things for me is if I know I've gotten stronger, I'm not, I'm not changing anything. Like if what's working is working, even if it's close to a meet, I'm running what I've been running into the meat i'll take a few days off obviously like that week of um i do the week of like doing just like very light speed work like just feel that snap and then just get the hell out of there um so i guess like for my training i'm very just like just pay attention ride the waves that they come be smart when you're in those troughs um, but like, so I know for if I'm getting, let's say I'm getting a little bit beat up. So like, you know, my eyelids will twitch. I'm more stressed than normal. The My lowest hanging fruit in terms of like adjusting training is adjusting my deadlift. So I'll just cut my um, speed work volume, like in half usually, or I'll do it basically when I do it. Like, you know, the first couple, so I don't warm up into it because we just squatted and I have it all set up and ready to go. So like the first couple feel kind of like, crappy anyways but then like you'll hit this like little groove with it and it's like pop 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 and then the second it feels heavier i just stop and then i just go on to something else if the volume is really low i might add in some like weighted back extensions or something like that more ghrs but um just like using my i don't know why but i feel like my deadlift is just like a really good tell of like where my recovery status is and like i can't emphasize this enough inadequate recovery is the number one reason that conjugate doesn't work for people Like a body in recovery is just seeking homeostasis you cannot get better so if you're trying to improve upon efficiency and quarter and coordination you have to be recovered in training sessions so like there's just something about the deadlift and even through my almost 10 years of nine years of lifting now um my deadlift like will have these like wild swings and a lot of it was just like back in the day just making bad choices poor training decisions um But like for the first time in the last couple of years, it's been very stable. And like one of the things that I've done is just really, 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 if I'm not feeling that pop off the floor, I'm just not deadlifting. Like Charlie Francis's whole, don't be afraid to walk away. 100% with the deadlift, that's me. I'm just walking away. Um, I do find if I wear my full gear for a max effort deadlift, I recover a lot better than if I don't wear any or wear partial gear. Um, So I tend to throw my full gear on for it. And even then, like for dynamic effort work, so it's obviously based off of my comp deadlift. But even then, like if I was doing it raw, when you're warming up, you just know where it's supposed to be. So you just kind of stop. But I'll put my full gear on for dynamic effort work for deadlifts sometimes just just because there's something about it. It's just much, much easier to recover from. I don't know if it's because of the heavy band tension or something. Um, the other thing that like I just kind of talked about this is just it's always leaving room and just walking away knowing that there's five or ten more pounds there. I'll get that the next time. And just learning to like slowly build that momentum. And then it's being honest, honest with yourself. Like if you're stressed, recovery is not where it needs to be, right? That deadlift's not popping. All right. So it's not like just you go in and you adjust one day, right? Like stress accumulates over time and it takes time to dissipate. So there's going to be times where it's like, okay, this next month, I'm going to stop one lift short every time I'm max effort lift. I'm going to stay in there one lift short. I might look at my program or my calendar and be like, okay. I have what I call got to have them lifts, right? These are lifts that I'm going to literally build my training around because I want to see them improving so that I know I'm getting better. And of course, like with conjugate every week, you know how strong you are and how fast you are. Yep. Like, we get that feedback, but there's ones that like, I want to It helps stay in the zone that like competitive zone. So an SSB box squat, straight weight box. squat. That's what I base all my dynamic numbers off of. So that, that to me is like, okay, well, if I have that in there, I might take this day easier. I might even skip a max effort here and just kind of peek into that one lift and really go after that one lift and like, you know, like how the Dynamo Club did it, right? Like everything has a hierarchy of things that are important of important in terms of developing coordination. So like there are certain lifts, like an SSB box squat to me hits a deadlift so well and hits a squat. Like it's just got a lot of carryover to both lifts. There's a lot of information there. Uh, close stance. You know, low box, SSB squat. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, it doesn't really tell me. Like, I don't really care if I hit more the next time that I do that. Yeah. So there are ones where it's like, I'm just going to hit what I need to hit and just get the fuck out of here. Um, and I think that's just like, for me, it's more of a, you're going in and you have this, like, this plan and this structure. And I don't change the plan or the structure until I'm, like, warming up. And, you know, once they're at, like, I don't know, 50, 60, 70%, like, you know. Yep when it's appropriate, when it's not. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, I will say if it's an SSB box squad and it's feeling like shit, I'm going after it anyways. Like that's going to be the day that like – because I, I do feel like you can't get too far away from just competing sometimes. Like sometimes you're going to go to a meeting and you're going to feel like shit and you're still going to have to fucking
0: compete. Yep.
1: Um, but, yeah, so I think for me, like lowest Hanging fruit is that deadlift just – Everybody I've ever taught, I'm going to ramble on it for a sec, but everybody who I've ever talked to, like Vincentello, Brad Gillingham, like people who've lifted a long time. If you ask them, what's the biggest lesson? Like you would go back and tell yourself, it's like, I wish I deadlifted less. Like everybody's, nobody's like, I wish I pulled more. So like, for me, it just really, uh, really resonated with me from those conversations too.
0: Yeah. I'm 100% there with you as well. That was probably the biggest change I made to my deadlift training um, when I was my most competitive was that instead of doing a max effort deadlift on max effort day, I moved it to dynamic day to be able to allow me to recover, but I only did it every two to three weeks. Generally every two weeks it was fine, but like you said, there's some days where you're like, "Nope, not, not happening. I'll push it back to the following week. And just for me, that was, I mean, to only take, one really big, heavy deadlift every other week for me was just like, again, I felt like I could recover from it. I, that was the one lift where like, even if I, it was a good deadlift day, I hit a training PR, um, even though it'd be five or 10 pounds, whatever it was, it wouldn't matter. The next 48 hours, my body felt absolutely fried. And so I, I don't know how some people deadlift two or three times a week and, and feel recovered or that they're giving their best effort to any of the other lifts. It, um, and just like you said, like almost everyone I've talked to feels that that's the one lift that one's your indicator of your overall systematic fatigue, whether you're, your readiness is high or it's not. And the fact that it needs to be the most pivotal training lift that you have just because of how you're feeling that day will dictate how that goes. And then it, it just steamrolls into the other lifts later on in the week. Or even maybe even later on that session, if you happen to be somebody that maybe, you know, deadlifts and benches in the same day, if your deadlift feels like trash, your bench is probably going to feel good either. Um, You're going to get that feedback immediately. And I've just also found, too, that I didn't feel like I needed to do my, this is also more of a conjugate thing, too. But most, I agree that generally I didn't feel like I had to speed pull with as much weight on my deadlift. Like I could get away with like 40, 45, the high end for me might be 50% sometimes and I felt like you know obviously against bands or chains and that for me was like usually good enough um because I was almost using it more as technical practice and again that readiness and that pop and as long as I had it that's all I really cared about I didn't care about what the tension was at the top and you know what what the true percentage was in my hand because I knew that ideally the following week I would get a good single in regardless of what that variation was and that would let me touch the weights that I'm going to see on meat day. Um, and I was somebody that could recover on my squat almost every given week. It didn't matter what variation I did. I felt that I could recover from it, but not the deadlift. Um, so I 100% agree with you on that, That that's probably more so than not The people that have done this the longest. I think they'll probably agree. And maybe that's just because like we've talked about the younger crowd, again, their lifts aren't really up to par their techniques kind of shit. So they're not really taxing their body quite to the extent of what they really could be if everything was all all good in terms of their technique and their strength was actually better. So maybe that lets them train it more frequently. But um that's I one hundred percent agree there. So
1: the um the technique part too, yeah. right? Like if they're pulling with bad technique, like it's going to tax them muscular system more, but that tends to recover pretty quickly. Right. right. Yeah. Like it's that efficiency, right? Like when you, when you learn how to like move fast, like one, it makes it safer because you're dispersing the forces more evenly amongst all the joints and muscles and stuff like that. Um, but like, yeah, I think you're right. Like once you learn how to like really apply force, you don't like, like I don't feel tired after it. it's just all of a sudden I'll go to do something and I just don't have the, the juice, but I, I, I pull only once every three weeks. And my deadlift speed work is 10% less yeah. um, than my squall work. And one thing that Laura really did with my programs, I think helped a lot too, were one, the good mornings every third week are money in terms of like recovery and stuff. But I don't do a ton of bands on max effort work. It's a lot of chains. Yeah. Um, especially with like the, I mean, the a deadlift with like a good amount of band tension is freaking brutal to recover from. Yeah. Um, and you can tell, like, if you're good with dynamic effort work, like, your speeds will be slower, and you'll realize that. It's like, holy shit, like, this deadlift messed me up for, like, two to three weeks. Yep. And all of a sudden you're coming out of it. Um, but it, a lot more, like, with squats, I barely ever squat with a lot of bands. It's usually a lot of chains on max
0: effort, and then, of course, the bands on uh, dynamic effort work. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then I guess um, in your in your single-ply uh, experiences, I guess, compared to... Your raw from a from a programming perspective what kind of i guess we can just talk gear in general gear and raw i guess for you when you're looking at programming what are kind of the big differences that you're seeing with the the conjugate system and how you're choosing to program for those people because obviously now you've got some different demands when you've got gear on in terms of the total amount of weight you're able to handle but obviously uh how frequently you have to may not be in the gear like Raw, you can obviously just take a max effort squat every week where you've got to kind of rotate your gear around a little bit uh, from a recovery perspective as well, I guess. Talk about how you – the differences in your programming for you whenever you're looking at programming for people there.
1: Yeah, there's not there's not a ton. Um, so the bench shirt I'm in every third week. Okay. Um, I did uh, – I ran a metal militia bench and I was in the shirt every week. Whew. I ended up like um, – So my elbow was killing me, it was killing me, it was killing me. I ended up snapping my tricep and getting an avulsion fracture on my elbow. The doctor's like four to six weeks. And I'm like, all right, well, four weeks, because that's for an average person. I'm not average. Got in again and snapped it again. I ended up fracturing it twice. Um, So I ran a long block raw after that. It was like three or four months before I got in the shirt. But when I was running in the shirt more frequently, I would just, I have shirts I can rotate like different sizes and different grooves and stuff. And I do think being in multiple shirts really, really helped me understand the shirt so that now when I'm in the one that I actually like to compete in, I can feel that groove. I'm much more in tune. Um, But I would like, so how I set the shirt, like when I was wearing it more frequently, like I wouldn't jack the shit out of it. I'd let the collar just kind of sit high. I wouldn't cuff the sleeves. Um, So like I would manipulate my gear quite a bit. Um, With that, I just got a Ray Jacks. which is the first time I've lifted in one. So I've been using that and just, it's too big. So just like messing with like how I can adjust the sleeves, how I can adjust the collar to get more out of it and stuff. So every week it's just kind of a learning process right now, but typically every third week I'll be in the bench shirt. Um, I wear loose bottoms only for max effort and um, dynamic effort work. So like I did a video, I get into these bottoms in seven seconds. They basically just give me some compression, but you can still feel the groove of the, of the suit a little bit.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then as a meet gets closer, I'll start putting more of my gear on um, the t- for max effort work, the tighter gear. If I feel I need to groove the the tighter gear a little more, I'll, I'll wear some of it on um, dynamic effort day and just really like pull the legs up and stuff. Um, just so I can hit depth on the box or whatever it is I'm doing, but I, I don't change much. I think a lot of it comes down to how comfortable somebody is in the equipment itself, how well they are at using it. Like for me, I don't get a ton out of my knee wraps and you know, maybe the argument is, Oh, well, if you wrapped your knees more in training, maybe you would. Um, but it doesn't throw me out of my groove for my suit at all. I have other lifters that they get a lot out of their wraps. They feel the need to wrap more often. So they wrap more often. Um, how often they're in the, the tighter comp gear um, just kind of like varies. Like I think one thing that needs to be taken into consideration is how much weight, right? So if, we very rarely ever wear full gear. It's usually just suit bottoms. Um, but you got to remember above and below the suit bottoms is raw, right? Like I don't have equipment on my low back. I don't have equipment on my knees. Like it's literally just loose suit bottoms. So if I get too far away, if I just did raw stuff and I get too far away from handling the weights that I'm handling, I kept throwing out my fucking back and I couldn't yeah. understand why in the beginning. It's like, what the fuck is happening? Like why why do I keep hurting my back the second I start getting back into and I realized that like the weights were just too different. Um, so just, I mean, obviously like accommodating resistance can help because, you know, if you're using enough chain weight, enough bands, like you're feeling that weight on your back. But I wear bottoms for absolutely everything. Um, I'm older too. So it just, I ran cycles before where I was sumo deadlifting for four or five weeks in a row. And then boom, my hip would just fucking act up. And then I couldn't sumo deadlift for weeks. It actually happened before my first meet. I was pulling sumo, pulling sumo, go to test my deadlift. And I couldn't even pull 135. I was getting this huge adductor pain. So I ended up just pulling conventional. And Murph's like, you can't just change the way you're deadlifting before you first. I'm like, watch me, motherfucker. I'm about to. I was like, it's the only way I can fucking pull. Um, so like I, I just, but wearing the bottoms, I've just been able to train much more consistently. I'll tell you, dynamic effort work is a lot harder because like the pressure and all that stuff. So yep. like I feel it makes me more fit at the end of the day and just, you know, I do have a lot of gear that I can cycle through. Like my loose briefs, the video I get in and literally in seven seconds, like that's how loose they are. Um, but it still lets me handle the weights I need to handle. Um, it requires you to change your dynamic effort weights a little bit because obviously I'm wearing less gear and stuff like that. But, um, I don't change, I don't change much. It's just, it's more individual preference. I would not recommend anybody getting the shirt, obviously more than once every three weeks. Um, I you have somebody needs more volume in the shirt, we'll just do reps in it. Yeah. So, like, I ended up deciding, because this is how it always works with the bench shirt, right? That uh, I was like, man, I can't, I'm not touching well, I'm not in the groove. And, like, this is the shirt I've always competed in. I'm like, I don't know what's fucking happening. I put on a different shirt, and I'm like, oh, this is the one. But it was, like, I don't know, four weeks out from a competition. And so like I did triples then I did doubles. And then I like, I still got like almost 10 touches in that shirt before I went, before I went to the competition just by doing more reps.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing I took from uh, Vincent Zdenzo and my shirt work was one getting in it every three weeks. Um, and then also he was a big fan of doing like airboard doubles and triples yes. um, to like you said, essentially rep work to work on the groove and to teach you the patience of the shirt, and then when when it take time to get ready for a meet, um, you he he would ideally like to look around like sixteen weeks out because basically that would get you in the shirt five times if you're doing it every third week, and that last week would obviously be you know a deload week. Um, and he said that that worked really well because the first couple times would be nothing but those airboard triples, and he's like eventually by your second or third set of those, you should be pretty damn near touching at like twelve weeks out. And he's like, you'll be touching with a lighter weight than what you thought you could. And he's like, that's a good thing because now you just go a little bit over that. And now you've got your opener established to get you in the meat. And he's like, then the rest of the training cycle, you just do like an airboard uh, rep or two in the shirt just to make sure you continue to feel good. And then you can add in your variation, whether that be a board or a verse band or chains. You just start, you know, changing your method that you want to use as you get closer to the meat. And I mean, I had really good success with that. And, you know, it's, it's wild to think that you're only in there that much, but like you said, the recovery part is that the next day, your hands and your elbows are trashed. And then then if you got to start adding in deadlift and squat into that as well, you've got to have your body prepared for, for those when it came. So I, I, I agree, but to get into a shirt more than maybe every other week, if you were really pushing close towards the meat and you needed more touches, but that still would be really, really tough. But every third week seems to be like a, a sweet spot.
1: Brian Siders was huge. So Jeremy Hartman had talked to Brian Siders and he's like, hey, check this out. And he had sent me the video and like Brian Siders was talking about the airboards. And like, I mean, with a regular board on there, you can dump the weight. Even touching, you can dump the weight onto your stomach and lose that groove of the shirt. So there were a lot of them where it was just like, you know, I'm I'm so out of the groove, but those airboards, I mean, it, it changed. My bench press just got so much better. Yep. Like you're always just in the groove. Like I don't over tuck my elbows. Um, so even if you could touch, like even just stopping at an inch above, you know you're in that groove, and that last, you know, half an inch, it sucks or whatever. But if you've been in the shirt for a while, you just kind of know how it works. You get a few touches in um, before the meet, here I and mean, you're good to go. But yeah, air boards were huge. Yep.
0: All right. So the last thing here is, I guess you know what's new with uh you what do you have anything coming on in the next i don't know three four six months we're almost here towards the end of 2023 if you have anything planned for 2024
1: uh we'll have we'll have a few well some lifters probably do some equip nationals at USAPL next year um a lot of my lifters they're both raw and equipped so it just kind of depends on what they feel like doing um for meets and stuff so But one of the things that I, you know, that I'm going to continue to do is just, I've really changed the way that I coach into being much more like educational resource-based. I have a lot of lifters that have just been lifting a long time. So it's more like a training group that just bounces ideas off of each other and things that have worked and stuff like that. Um, So hopefully we'll just continue to kind of grow that knowledge base and keep getting stronger, hopefully.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, I guess let everyone know where they can find you on Instagram or if they want to, you know, reach out with questions, uh absorb any of your content, how can they get hold of you?
1: Yeah, so Instagram is probably the best. It's my personal page is KWCam, but I share all my personal training and stuff on there. Um, and then Precision Powerlifting Systems, there's precision underscore powerlifting underscore systems on Instagram also. Um, I share more like uh Lifter stuff on there. But there's content on on both of them or whatever. So those are the best places. Awesome.
0: All right. Well, I will make sure I have that in the show notes for people to be able to find it. Um, and again, I, I really like, love your content, everything I see. It's really fantastic. Um, you make it very easy to digest and, um, it's a lot of stuff. I'll say it's a lot of stuff that people may not want to hear sometimes, but it's what they honestly need to hear. And it's a good eye-opening uh, amount of content for especially uh, younger people, for sure. If you're getting into powerlifting or have only got a couple of years in, you can take a lot of good stuff away uh, from coaches stuff here. It's really good. So um, I really appreciate you coming on today. This was a great conversation. We had a lot of really good, deep discussions. Um, I learned a lot. Uh, So I I appreciate your time jumping on. It's good to actually sit down and talk shop uh, outside of just Instagram. Um, So thanks again, coach. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. I appreciate you having me on. And I mean, we love talking
0: about this stuff. So absolutely. All right. Have a good day, man. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to thirst for more podcasts. Make sure you give us a follow on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else you like to consume your podcast. You can also check us out on YouTube at the Smitley where you'll find clips and lots of educational based material for strength and conditioning and exercise science. You can also make sure you give me a follow on Instagram at bsmitley or at Team Thirst, which is my gym Instagram page. For any more future updates on episodes to come, you can make sure you follow me there. I'm your host, Brandon Smitley. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you at the next episode.